You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Prue. Good morning, Michael. Andre. It's another morning with Andre, and it's snowy outside, and oh, could life be better? Yeah, yesterday's the first day I wasn't able to bike to work because of the weather. I I biked in the rain, I I biked in some light snow, but uh, yesterday was just a little bit too much. What what did Toronto get, do you know? Uh, Probably half what you got. I think we got 12 centimeters, but after the plows come through... Everything gets pushed to the sh- side. Like it was more about a safety safety issue than a oh my god, let's call the army. Yeah, no, we got we got at least uh, foot foot and a half, I would think. And now you know you're listening to a Canadian podcast because we've just spent the first minute talking about the weather. Now let us tell you what kind of snow we got. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um. So continuing with our 2021 resolution of. Andre not getting to talk about Chardonnay every second podcast. Um, although although he just mentioned it now. Uh, and are we, are we and start... my resolution to try and get Andre to taste more uh, Cabernet Franc. <laughs> are we, uh, uh, we going to have to uh, add Chardonnay to the swear jar? Uh, yes, spreadsheet? that would be great. Five cents every time you mention Chardonnay. Oh, and God. it's only you. I can mention Chardonnay all day long. Oh my God. Okay. That's... Uh... I'm adding it to the spreadsheet. Okay. Okay, starting so, now. So today, uh, I've got, uh, I got, I got, this is kind of an exciting guest, I thought. Uh, we got Mark Bistore, and, and and I hope I'm I'm saying his name right, because Andre and I had a little debate on how to say his last name. Well, I wasn't sure. It's uh, easier to ask. Mark, how do we say your last name? Um, yeah, Pistor or Pistor is fine. Oh, so we were both right. <laughs> All right, well, there we go. And uh, from Fogelar, but he does a lot of other stuff. But today we're going to be talking about Fogelar because Andre and I had dropped to our doors a box of Cabernet Franc, strictly Cabernet Franc. So we talked to Mark, and um, it looks like we're going to do a horizontal, that's what everybody <laughs> wants to call this today. Of 2018s, plus we're going to go into a back vintage of uh, Cabernet Franc. So, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Matt, you're burying the lead again. Like, we got to give a, a little bit more to Mark. Okay, we said he's from Fogelar. The reason that we're having Mark here is because he works heavily with Cabernet Franc. And I know Michael glossed over the other places that you work, but uh, Mark, why don't you give a shout out to all the places that you're working at before we dive right in? Yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, it's not just me, I have um, an awesome team. Uh, two guys work full time, and then I work with two contractors. And we do um, Dark Horse, which is the winery up in Grand Bend, and um, Marinissen, as well Albento. And then I get to work a little bit with um, with Ramsey Amaro up at Ridge Point. Uh, it's not official, but it's sort of uh, really fun to see those wines. Well, I guess it's official now. Well, I just <laughs> you know I just get to go by when they're making wine and see all the stuff that comes out and. Uh, some great conversations it's really cool to see those varietals um some of the back vintages of nev in the cellar and then we do a little sparkling business where we we bottle up some people's sparkling wines up there so that's been really exciting to start with those guys and um there's a new cidery up in milton that i've been working with called chudley uh they have a big apple farm and they just opened a cidery last summer 
that's been really exciting. Um, and then uh, most recent project uh, that we started with is Amo, which is uh, a new winery going to be opening up in Niagara on the lake. So, um, oh, so you're a yeah, busy guy. Just sort of really, yeah, really lucky to have uh, the breadth of experience and work with uh, some really great people. You're almost you're almost as busy at Andre Lipinski at opening new wineries. <laughs> yeah, I've had a lot of like since I I left from um, from the the big house. I uh, we've worked a lot with with newer wineries and and with um, or refreshing brands like Alvento. And it's it really exciting because it, it's like an open, um, it's it's a it's a blank slate. So you get to really draw, and uh, and bring to life uh, the desires of the owners. So it's been super exciting. Now I've always considered Fogelart to be sort of the the new guys on the block. And the few times I've tasted your wine, I, I remember I think the first time I was introduced to your brand was Cuvée in what like twenty sixteen, I guess. I guess twenty seventeen. So I guess. Time flies when you're having a, a good time here, but uh, tell us a little bit about your brand and how you got started. So um, I worked for, um, well, <clears throat> this is my 20th year in the wine industry. I started in 2001 working for the Wine Rack in Ottawa. And um, so that was a Vincor owned company at the time and uh, had such a great experience and awesome manager uh, and then found the program at Brock and, and transferred schools. I did my undergrad at Brock in, in Enology and Viticulture and, and worked in the wine rack stores and then at Jackson Triggs, um, the winery in retail. And then for my co-op, went out west and worked uh, in the vineyards for Vincor in the Okanagan Valley and then with Bruce Nicholson at Jackson Triggs, Okanagan. And uh, came back to Ontario, did a teaching degree and uh, finished my teaching degree and didn't have a job. Um, which was pretty common around 07. And uh, Bruce Nicholson had just moved back to Ontario, so I was able to um, get in for some vintage work in 07, which was an amazing vintage. And uh, and that turned into what has become my career. So I worked with uh, Vincor, which turned into Constellation, which um, uh, by 2014 was still Constellation. And, and I left to um, get back into teaching and to uh, work a little on some of my own wines. So my brand was launched in... Uh, in um in 20 the summer of 2015 um the initial startings were in that in 2013 2014 year and um and just turned into you know doing some consultation with fred and uh, working on my own brand um back into the wine industry full time and so i've been at my virtual brand for um yeah a little bit sort of too long now six seven years um but it's just been really exciting to produce small batches in the way that I um, that I want to see the wines, as opposed to, you know, my focus with a lot of the wineries is making sure that the brand is is well represented in the finished wines, and and you know that my voice isn't isn't the dominant one on those um, particular wines. But um, with Fogelar, I've been able to sort of play around and and learn about winemaking, the challenges of of Chardonnay production, um, you know the. Uh, excitement of, of making Rieslings in the style that I think Ontario should be looking at. And finally, I'm just learning everything I can about uh, Cabernet Franc production, which is, you know, uh, I think, as we've established, my favorite thing. So, so, so why why did you go with Cab Franc? Like, what was what was the impetus to, uh, you know, really focus on Cab Franc? Because I can't really think of too many uh, wineries or virtuals or anything like that that really go, yeah, for Cap Franc's going to be one of our six. <laughs> it's basically you and Brian Schmidt, I think, at the at the front line right now. 
So um, in, in 2001, um, when I saw the Brock program, I had the 1998 reserve Cab Franc from Inniskillen. And uh, literally that, that wine was um, so beautiful, so expressive, so complex. Um, that I thought to myself, well, if you could do this with wine, then this is a, um, you know, a science and an art that I think is worth pursuing. I think that, you know, for me, it still is one of the most important wine experiences of, of my life. Um, and it was with Cab Franc. And the more I learned about wines, the more I learned about Ontario wines. You know, my initial thoughts for Niagara in, in you know, 2002, 2003, when I was just starting to get into wine and starting to learn about wine, was that it was Cabernet Franc and Riesling that were our varietals and Chardonnay and Pinot Noir um, were secondary from, from what I could tell um, in what I liked and, and where I was um, thinking. And, you know, a lot of that reason I think has to do with um, both the sort of lack of uh, those varieties on the world market in terms of people focusing on it. Sure. That's one of them. But I think just the opportunity for complexity, the consistency um, that you can achieve if you treat the grapes right, and um, um, the yeah, just the deep complexity that that you can get in these wines with a little more weight and, a, and a, um, you know a little more savory in the in the product spectrum. And I'm a big food and wine guy rather than a um, a wine guy, and so I, I think that's why Cab Franc appealed so deeply to me. So I'd like to get right into this this first wine. Yeah. So we have three. Uh, in front of us, uh, all 2018, which I believe is the first time you've done three different Cab Francs, Mark. Am I correct on that? Uh, yeah. Uh, yes. From the, same, from the same year, I mean. Same year, three different Cab Francs. Since the first year was 2018. Well, and we're dealing with two Cab Francs from, I guess, sort of opposite sides of the Niagara growing region. We have a Vinemount Ridge, a Four Mile Creek, and a Niagara Peninsula. Uh, I guess before we get into the wines and you tell us about them, uh, through your eyes, what was 2018 like as a growing year? Uh, one of the most difficult that I've been a part of, from uh, especially from a red perspective, um, but almost everything. Um, the there was a lot of promise over the course of the summer, but we were 100% humidity and 30 degrees Celsius for most of September and the beginning of October, and you know grapes were just melting on the vines and. Um, you know, the, the best maintained sites with the best conditions um, did okay. And the rest of it was super challenging. So when asked what vintage I wanted to do, um, I thought the 18 was best. A, it's what's on the market right now, but B, um, they're just sort of, it's a lot of work to get to this final expression. I was just um, really excited to finish and be comfortable with putting these wines into the bottles that they're in. And so, um, yeah, it, 18 was um, enormously challenging and, and took a lot of work in the vineyard and took a lot of work in the cellar to, to sort of bring these around. So let's, let's start with the 18, which is the, which is the white label, which is your, uh, which is your Niagara Peninsula. Uh, I'm, I'm looking at the two bottles. You've got an uh, Offenlanders vineyard and a Pecone vineyard. Is the white label a blend of those two, or do you have other grapes in here as well? It's a blend of those two. And, um, and I'll use uh, if I have any uh, back vintage or um, or blend back with the the 19 as well. It's all open in the white label. It's about um, creating uh, you know a simple fruity, uh, tasty 
food friendly expression of the varietal um and and so I, I don't really limit myself there so yes it's both vineyards for sure and there's a little 16 a little 17 a little 19 in there as well but how much back vintage can you put into a wine and still call it a vintage wine oh 15 percent is the um where the regulations hit so it's it's less than that um but it's you know it's probably 10 or 12 percent um of those other vintages just in really small amounts though right i'm not making a ton of this i think this was 125 cases and and what's the price on it um i'm i'm going to move it down to 1995 this year okay because if it's not there already then i'm going to move it there because i've um, been able to get sort of my volume and my costs in control enough to be comfortable with that price point I'm taking a look at at, um, at some notes that I made about the 2018. I'm really glad that we're doing this podcast because this is a, a retaste, I think, for both of us, Michael, because we did the, the thumbs up with the 2018 Cab Franc, and I think we were in disagreement at the time. And I'm not just saying this because Mark is here. It's definitely showing better today than the last time we talked about it. Um, but I, when I, we, I said those out, and it was pretty close to bottling. Okay. And I thought your descriptions were um, were accurate. And, and what I know about my wines, my winemaking style, is that, um, you know, that that initial phase is pretty, um, the initial phase for my wines is, uh, is about six months, eight months. And um, then they start to work themselves into where they're supposed to be. It's like so the, the I didn't piracy... think it was necessarily unfair. I just thought there's a lot more potential in that than that wine maybe than than you gave it credit for and, and i think michael saw the simplicity there and, and gave it the thumbs up so i was happy with that <laughs> it's uh well i mean coming back to it like the thing that that really I, I think knocked it back at the time was just how present the like the red pepper jelly the pyrazine note was to it at the time we tasted it but now with a bit more time in bottle it's a little bit more integrated i don't know michael if you want to tell me i'm full of crap and just trying to kiss mark's butt here but i mean it's definitely there but it's a it's um the photo has come into focus like the elements have really melded together where maybe back when we tasted it last year it was a little bit more disjointed well well surprisingly andre you're not full of shit for the first time in your life so i'm pretty impressed with you uh this morning it must be these morning podcasts that uh, (laughs) focus you a little more first mark I'm going to ask you how long does this sit in in a barrel, and then I and then I have some comments about the wine. Um, so the you know a lot of it has to do with what I have um, in in bottle, but what I'm looking for is generally between 14 and 18 months. So the 18 took a while to get into barrel, and it came out in um, in sort of uh, the summertime. So this would be 16 months. So I, I wasn't down until about January of um, of 2019, and then we're taking it out and in um july 2020 so i think your pricing is is, is perfect for this one it's, it's a it's a good like it's a solid 20 dollar wine uh it's got those notes that i'm i'm really looking for in a cab franc and as andre said i think it has come even more into focus uh you know i got a lot of uh, tobacco but there's a, also a, a certain kind of silky note on the palate before tannins really start to, to start to kick in this reminded me, and maybe it's because this time of year I'm in this part of the world and this, this year I am not. This kind of reminds me of a Chianti Classico Reserva. I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what note gives me that. But there's a lot of black cherry in here. There's cassis. There's a juiciness, yet oh. still a smokiness and a savory note. 
there's a lot going on here, especially for twenty dollars. Let, let let me let me see if I can guess what it is that that is about the Chianti class. Because the moment you said that, my mind went there because uh, I recently had a chance to taste a few Chianti classicos with Michael Michael Goodell. But there's something about those tannins that still just hold on to that last frigid, that last tiny bit of um, rusticness while still delivering a lot of elegance on the mid palate. Like I, like I said, thinking back to what we tasted this, like it was a little bit more chunky on the on the mid palate. Where now it's completely smoothed out, but it's not completely smooth. It's still it's still grabbing onto the back of your tongue with just the tips of its fingers on the back of it. I mean, you guys can't see it because we're not on video, but uh, <laughs> descriptions are exactly what I, I like. What I like <laughs> wines and what I'm trying to hit in these wines and with the decisions that I'm making. So. Um, yeah, and then 18 was my most savory vintage overall, and um, just because of the work that had to be done to to tame the green and to work with these wines. So I'm really happy that the, the fruit is, I was really happy when the fruit had held on. Um, it's supported a little bit by that back vintage in that 2019 to give it a little more freshness. But um, um, but yes, I, I think when you saw it early, the tannins are disjointed, and I think what you're tasting now is sort of where my wines end up, which is um, some really great opportunities to pair with food. And, you know, and for people that like to taste the red wines they're drinking, it gives you that last little, um, I don't know, bite. They're just not perfect. So that's so pretty important. Mark, maybe the question I, I have then, I know this is a really nerdy winemaking question. Are the, are pyrazines in, in fruit linked to, tannins from the skin as well like is it like when, when you're dealing with wines that maybe have a little bit more of that green note do they generally show more green uh when they're younger until things settle down yeah so pyrazines would be a direct um you know they're not related necessarily 100 to tannins but they do indicate ripeness and the la- least less ripe your capron grapes are the higher the concentration of uh, pyrazines are going to be and um, normally at the same point, um, your tannins are not as developed as they should be. So they have a, a chance to be a little more aggressive, a little bit more bitter. And so in 2018, I actually had to do, I did two picks from Piconi, which was the first time I had done it. And that's because the grapes were potentially on the end of breaking down in the middle of October. And I didn't want to miss it to where I didn't have any crop or that mark didn't get paid for any fruit because things just fell apart. So um, I picked early and it was a risk and um, and it worked out. It took some, you know, I, I used a lower sulfur regime. I allowed a little bit more development over its aging. And um, and I, so I treated it a little bit differently than other stuff. And I, I really pulled back on the oak because I didn't want to lock anything in in these wines. Um, I was afraid of the oak plus the green maybe showing too much. And um and then I did a later harvest where I had a higher incidence of rot, but I had more ripeness and less um, green. So hopefully we see less savory in the in the Piconi um, versus the white label. And that's just from a harvest decision point of view. So yeah, methoxypyrazines are directly related to the harshness of the tannins you're going to get on the palate, but more so because they're both present at the same time. So um, Mark, I, I we're now going to move on to, to wine number two which is the Oppenlander Vineyard. Obviously, you were just talking a little about the Pecone, but before the before we started, you said, let's go uh, Oppenlander next. Uh, first of all, I'd like to note that um, the white label is at uh, 12.7% alcohol. 
this Offenlander is 12.9 and the Bacone is 13.1. So you've kept the alcohols pretty, uh, pretty in, in check. Uh, but I have noticed on this bottle that you have two bottles uh, that are under cork and one under screw cap. So that's my first question about why is the Oppenlander under screw cap? So, um, like, if you've had a chance to, to dig your nose into that glass, um, I've worked with this vineyard before, the uh, 2015 Old Ton um, Cabernet Franc, which is a project that me and, and Ramsey work on together, um, was from this vineyard. The 2017 White Label um, I didn't go back to them for a single vineyard approval. I was only making a little bit of it in 2017, the white label that is. And so I made it a single vineyard from, from Openlander. And, um, and then this 2018, I called them up and said, can I put the name on the label? And they were happy uh, to have me do it. And they're absolutely phenomenal growers. This is from one of their home blocks. Um, and uh, we get it from their harvester that essentially picks you know, like perfect berries off of the vine. And we put those into a fermentation bin. We do 100% whole berry fermentation. We do extended maceration, but it's just because temperature's cooler normally, like 24 to 26 degrees peak. We don't go for big, huge extracted um, in this. We go for the sort of beauty and purple fruit and uh, and freshness. So we, um, uh, we choose to put this under screw cap for that reason. We just think the the um, the wine itself, its expression is, is better represented um, in the in the fresher uh, opportunity. So I'm just taking some notes here, Andre, on the wine. I'm also I, taking I have some the notes. You've tasted this before. Um, I actually don't believe I've tasted this one before. Oh, so we're tasting it together. Yes, Interesting. Uh, so yeah, juicy, silky, nice cherry, wild strawberry note. I also picked up some raspberry in here too. Pushing up on some like red skin plum, but it's definitely not one of the the front runners there. Um, it's it's definitely a little more savory as, as well. I I I picked that out, and there's a floral note to it. I think the floral and that can move in between um, that savory expression and the floral. It's complex. Um, it's a lot about the aromatics in this wine. Even the mouthfeel we're trying to achieve, um, and that we get from the process uh, is, um, you know, a little, I think a little bit fatter, a little bit softer mid palate. It still finishes with that tannin. That's um, that's sort of a product of of uh, thyme and oak, um, a little bit as well. So, yeah, it's cool. It's one of those wines where you know it's not quite full bodied, but it's definitely got a little bit more oomph than your Pinot. And it's just, I think, a good reminder to consumers and I guess to us as well that there's there's a whole spectrum between medium and full bodied that exists and it's not one or the other. Because this is definitely falling right halfway between those two. So it's a sure and uh, really youthful. When I opened it up I was I was yeah, so open to see it have developed a little bit more. Um I, you know I'm really excited for this wine in in a year. Uh, I think it's very good right now. Uh, I'm going to try it again tonight just to see if I can get some movement out of it. Uh, in terms of where it came from and our tastings in the cellar, um, I'm expect- expecting a lot more uh, fruit expression on the palate. I think the nose is great. I think it falls a little bit short on its uh, fruit expression um, uh, on the palate. I, I I disagree with you a little bit there. I, I like <laughs> the, 
as Andre mentioned, the, the raspberry, the cherry, the strawberry, I picked up more on the raspberry spectrum. Yep. Um, but I think it drinks well right now, and it's very fruit forward. Okay, good. Uh, I'm, I'm glad it gets better. So. Yeah, I, I actually agree with, with <laughs> Michael's assessment. It's, like just, the, the... it's just a very friendly, uh, I, I think it's a, a very friendly wine. That, that, uh, and I say that because I think with this glass, you're going to make a lot of friends. And you're, you're <laughs> going to make a lot of fans of, of the Fogelar label by pouring this because it is that fresh, juicy style uh, that I think uh, people uh, are looking for. It could it could uh, be chilled a little bit and act almost. Andre, you're gonna. I, I don't know if you're gonna get mad at me for saying this kind of thing, but almost like uh, Gamay esque. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's definitely getting into like crew level. Like Anya and I've been drinking a lot of Moulin Avant, and you know, this I think would be interesting to do side by side. But I, I just the bottom line for me, my favorite thing about this is just how ripe it is. Uh, you know, it it has. Those whispers of savory note, but it's not it's not overpowering. Like it's really well put together. Uh Mark, what are you hoping to sell or what are you selling that for? Um so I haven't finalized pricing on my black labels for what the rest of the year is. Um, but generally this is gonna run between thirty five and forty. But I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna release this at thirty five. And I'm going to move the, or thirty four ninety five. I'm going to move the Fogelar, the Piconi to thirty nine ninety five, just coming out of this year. Um, because my production opportunities are there. And uh, um, I think it's a better spot for my brand. And I want to get a little more volume, I think. So. Volume is always how good in this industry. How much you make of the Oppenlander? You said 125 on the white label. So this, I'm no, assuming, it's going barrels. to be a bit less. 65. How much was that? 65 cases. It's three barrels. Same as the Pagoni in 2018. It was three barrels as well. Well, Andre, are you ready to try one more? Yes. Well, from 18, I mean. I may have have, um, just jumped ahead while we were getting those details. Uh, I'll wait for you to to catch up. So tell us a little bit about the the Pagoni one. I think we talked about it a little bit. You probably don't have to say too much. Yeah, the, the Piconi is, is um, there's a small portion from that earlier pick, and the majority is coming from that later pick. Uh, 2018 was also my least use of uh, new oak across the board. Um, I have some back vintage 2018 now in my cellar just because um, just trying to balance the oak expression. 18 was a because of the retritus that was there, regardless of the work we did, sorting and sorting in the vineyard, sorting at the at the winery. Um, it was there, had an impact, and so um, we just felt that that the little bit of botrytis is going to reduce the expression of fruit a little bit. So we didn't want to cloud any of that. Um, I think we got, I got, I, you know, I really like where this wine's at. But it's those two. It's uh, aged for the same amount of time as the white in 2018. Normally, I try to get the white out a little bit longer or earlier, but we're about 16 months for both of them, um, bottled right around the same time, and um, and. Uh, yeah, that's it. Single vineyard, 30-plus-year-old vines, 1.25 acres, uh, managed by Phil Clark. Uh, Mark Piconi is the, the, um, the vineyard owner, and uh, the Riesling from that site goes to Charles Baker, and I bug him every year to get my hands on a little bit, but Stratus <laughs> has the site locked up. I was lucky enough to get this um, fruit in 2014. So the 2014 that we're tasting is... Um, Pretty much 100% uh, from the Piconi Vineyard, besides a little bit of 2013 that's blended in there. But 
Um, just an amazing vineyard, so consistent year after year, regardless of vintage uh, damage. Of um, uh, I don't know why. It just stays amazing and consistent. I do about 20% whole cluster in all of my Piconi fermentations. And um, um, yeah, that's about it. I'm always always fascinated um, looking at wines like this from a, a challenging vintage like 2018. You're Four Mile Creek has a little bit less alcohol stated on the back than the Piconi, which is Vine Mount Ridge. And you would imagine that Vine Mount Ridge would be a little cooler. And you've ended up with a little bit more alcohol from that vintage. What what difference did the um, did the sites have in uh, in how the vineyards turned out given the 2018 summer? Um, the thing about that that Vine uh, Mount Ridge site. This is very heavy clay, and um, you know, so water uptake is challenging. The vines are very small, so we'd actually, it's always um, super consistent, small berry size, um, really great um, tons per acre. Whereas um, in Niagara on the Lake, you can, depending if they have irrigation, which they do, and uh, you know, you could keep things in a in a better state for the for the majority of that year. The difference is that we saw from an alcohol point of view, I think we're just because that 18 open lander, they're all, they're always going to come in right around the same um, harvest on both sites. Um, you get some really great summer heat up on the ridge. Um, so it's not, it's completely out of the impact from the lake. And so the, the impacts of cooling are significantly less up on the ridge for the summertime. So from a ripeness point of view, as long as you don't frost early, uh, that site's great. But when we talk by Mount Ridge, there's a little bit of room back from this site, but this site literally sits right on the edge. And so all the cold air will fall off of this site into a, a valley that, that uh, that's down below Megalomaniac there in the back. Mm. And, um, you know, so the site is ideal for achieving ripeness. So I don't think that the two sites, we can't sorry, sort of have a... Um, a just uh, talk about from a climate point of view, um, there being a difference. So one should be riper. I think what we get is the, you know, difference of expression of um, both how they're managed, but their soils. So the stuff um, in Four Mile Creek is a, is lighter. Um, the soil structure is a lot lighter, a lot more on the the silty clay or, or um, even a little bit of sand in that site. And uh, the the um, Piconi Vineyard is is fairly heavy clay, so small vines, whereas the the Niagara on the Lake property has significantly larger vines. It could hold a little bit more fruit, but um, causes uh, some other challenges that go along with it. So uh, ripeness wise, I'd say they're very similar from an alcohol point of view. Um, the the 12.9, 13.1, I think that's, I don't know. Those are pretty much the same number. It, it is, but you still went through the effort to put the decimal point on the on the two of them, right? Yeah, it's just the number I get. It's just easy. like when I'm <laughs> writing my labels, it's the number I get from Brock when I run my test. <laughs> so I just have to be within that 1%. Um, and uh, I I think if if I would go back and check sugars, the Fogelar, uh, the Piconi is going to be higher um, in harvest sugars than the Open Lander was. 2022 20, and a bit, or 22.8 for the Open Lander around, and the Fogelar came in right around 23 or 23.1, so. So now, I guess we're going to move into the the 2014. Oh, we haven't even now, talked about how the how the how 
But we haven't even talked about how the 18 pecan tastes, Michael. We, it was all Mark talking. Well, I was I'm waiting let for you start then, Andre. Well, I was Let's gonna wait for you to you say something because, well, I mean, the, well, I mean, the one question I had is you mentioned that there was botrytis in the vineyard. Um, I think. Uh, as someone who's, who's tasted enough Riesling, I know what effect a little bit of botrytis can have on Riesling, but I don't know if I've ever talked to anyone who is, you know, full on told us that botrytis has affected the red wines. What impact does botrytis generally have on making red wines in terms of flavors? Oh, so is it, I mean, it's it's the worst thing you could have, right? So we work okay. as hard as we can to get it out of the vineyard, both by um, leaving it in the vineyard when we harvest it. And by doing some selection while we processed, but um, it reduces color, it reduces fruit intensity, um, and it can oxidize your tannins earlier than you would expect. So, um, you know, when I'm making the wines in 18, pretty much across the board, everything had a concern. Um, we, I don't know, there were no grapes that we brought in in 2018 at any of my sites that um, didn't have some botrytis besides maybe some of the earlier hybrids um, up at, uh, at um, in Grand Bend, which had a different summer altogether than, than we did down here. So, And yet, if it was Riesling or if it was Sauvignon Blanc, you, uh, you would have kept it in there and you would have made a mint on it. Yeah, I think that they're a little bit easier to deal with um, in, the, in the whites, especially Riesling. Sauvignon Blanc can really deaden those, those um, some of the great aromas. Uh, but, but you have all that fermentation activity, but when you're leaving your grapes in contact with the skins over that period of time, you have no opportunity to separate it. You have no opportunity to get it out. So you work as hard as you can with, um, uh, with tannins, with sulfur, with enzymes to reduce it, but it has to be done through selection. And, um, uh, and uh, we just worked as hard as we could in 18, but even if you think you got it all, you, you don't have it all. So. so Michael, you want to go first with the flavor profile here? No, I, I think I'm going to let you go because I may be controversial on this one. Uh, well, it's definitely it definitely skews darker fruit than the uh, Oppenlander. Uh, I'll give you that. I'm getting like blackberry compote. It's 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 fascinating because it has beautiful balance with acidity, but it feels like blackberry pie filling. And uh, I I hate using terms like uh, jam or compote because I think a lot of people's minds go sweet, but I'm more just talking about what that that fruit tastes like after it's been cooked. Minus the sweetness, and that's what I'm getting here. I got raspberry, cherry, uh, almost pushing up on on blueberry as well. It's um, I, I think my my two word tasting note for this wine is deep purple. <laughs> little little smoke on the water from my end, uh, because I got a, a real smoky character. I found this to be uh, a, quite a ballsy wine, uh, as opposed to the Offenlander, which was you know, uh, and I know we're told to stay away from these terms, but <laughs> I would say the Oppenlander would be the more feminine side of Cabernet Franc, and the uh, the Picone would be the uh, the more masculine side, being you know ballsy with some weight, some muscle to it. Uh, I got a big note here on the bottom that needs needs time to open, and mm-hmm. I think uh, where Mark was saying that he would like to see the Oppenlander tonight at dinner. I think uh, I'd like to see the Picone tonight at dinner, and I could. Granted, it's 10 in the morning, so I'm probably not <laughs> going to. But the Oppenlander, I thought, was drinkable right this minute. Whereas the Picone, it, it needs it needs some time. It needs to open. It needs to show more uh, of that character that it has. Because right now, 
it's much more closed and savory. You said you were going to be controversial. I'm going to be a, a little bit controversial on, on both of these. The tannin is very soft and integrated in both. And I think if we're talking about holding something in a cellar for a long period of time, the pecone might have a little bit longer to go. But once again, Mark's made some choices here about closure with the screw cap and the cork side by side. They're definitely going to evolve differently. Um, uh, I, I, I'm going to throw down and say they're both ready to drink right now, even though I am looking forward to seeing what they're going to taste like when I get home from work at like 8 p.m. tonight. See, I think the Oppenlander has the same longevity in bottle as the Pecone because of its closure. Exactly. I, you said it more simply than I did. <laughs> uh, I, I just think that closure is going to make it just that fresh kind of wine for a lot longer. And I, especially over, over the pandemic, I've opened a lot of old Aussie wines under screw cap. And I'm just amazed at how they just seem to be the same wine I had 10 years ago. It's, I still just find it fascinating. The evolution is so slow. That's it. I, I find it fascinating that there's still a debate on um, screw cap as a closure. I know not among most people listening to this podcast and, and probably not among winemakers, Mark, but I, I know it still exists among consumers that there is a, a debate that inferior wines end up under screw cap where, Michael, when you and I have raided your cellar, uh, I think Ontario Riesling is kind of the hallmark of that. When we've been opening your old Ontario Riesling, it's definitely been more Russian roulette when it comes to cork but with screw cap we've had fairly consistently a great experience yeah and yeah i you know in winemaking uh, we maybe have to get out there and talk about it a little bit more as a tool as opposed to um anything else so making decisions for the wine and making the best decisions for the wine from a, a closure point of view is is uh it it, it, it I think it's going to pay off for these two wines. And it's the first time I've really focused on or started to use or second time I've really used screw caps for my Cap Franc just because my winemaking style doesn't evolve well under a screw cap in general. So the Pecone would be hard for me to ever put it under screw cap. I don't know what that's going to look like. So um, I may in a couple of years do some trials, but uh, right now I love the way that it develops under cork and I use the screw cap with the open lander and we'll continue that just because it's a different wine. It's, it's a much prettier wine, and I, and I think it will benefit from that freshness that a that a screw cap will give it. Andre, the reason I wanted to jump ahead to the uh, to the fourteen before even talking about the eighteen was because, of, as I said, I thought that Mark said, and uh, again, it's early in the morning, so the brain's a little fuzzy. Um, that that there's a lot of pecone in this 2014. Am I correct on that, Mark? Yeah, I mean, and there's just a, a small amount of that year. I mean. 25 cases of the the Pecone single vineyard and I have like six bottles of it left and um is that the rest even of it one went, barrel it was the only Cap Franc that I brought in and I had a little bit of 2013 remaining in the cellar so when we're talking about a blending percentage it's inconsequential you could consider it essentially single vineyard the white label so so what I wanted to see was based on the 14 and the 18 and Look, 14's not a great vintage, you know, as, as Mark said, 18 is a tough vintage, but I think 14's a, is not a, a fantastic vintage in any way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm going to look for Mark to say yes or no on that. Yeah, it was really scary going into September. <laughs> <laughs> There's well, some br- blunt honesty from a winemaker if I ever heard it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This, this fruit came in at about 1.3 uh, tons to the acre. 
yeah, so it's not it's not a great vintage in any way, shape, or form. So what I was kind of looking for was to see how it is going to evolve over over uh, a few years. So obviously four years or or six from vintage, but to see how that picone fruit is going to act one under screw cap and in what I would consider similarly crappy vintage. Interesting. Uh, well, yeah, I think they're both bad for reds. Sorry, I was going to say 14, though, from a Pinot Noir and from a Chardonnay point of view. I've said Chardonnay twice now. I should probably send you guys some <laughs> money for that. Um, from a Chardonnay. No, no, that's no, no it's just me. Oh, it's just Andre? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why That's why I keep thinking you should say it as much as possible because it'll make him say it. All right, you got it. So 14 shards of Pinots are in my cellar, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm holding those to, to see what they look like. Because it was phenomenal because the, the fall was warm and allowed you to pick exactly when you needed to for those varietals. The thing was, we just didn't have the heat to make it there. So I think I picked 2014 at the end of November. Wow. Maybe November 20. I actually can't even. 20... It's, it's one of those things where um, when we started when we started ADX, I can now vividly rem- remember what every summer is like. And we started in 2015. I can't remember what 2014 was like as a summer in terms of month to month. And like you, like you said, you talk about about saying it was scary going into September. I remember 2017 was also another vintage where when you started taking vineyard samples at the beginning of September, it was looking a little scary for a little bit. Yeah, so 19, the worst of that from a September point of view, um, then 14, then 2009, then 2017. There you go. Jesus, so, so Andre, I haven't even seen the worst of You know, it yet. you were talking about that <laughs> um, that kind of baked or stewed fruit that you got in the uh, in the eighteen. Oh, this, uh, this smells like 14, my mom's raspberry. This smells like my mom's definitely more jam. prevalent. Yeah, this smells like my mom's raspberry. I know, I know. For some people in the industry, my mom's raspberry jam works as currency at, at certain wineries. Mark, <laughs> I'll have to bring you a jar of it. So yeah, Andre, there's uh, yeah, but there's a jammy quality to this to this wine. Uh, in, in, not in a in, not in a bad way. No, 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 no. Hey, I want to put you on the spot a little bit because you referenced all the Australian wines under screw cap that you tasted. Are you getting any tasting note that may uh, remind you of something Australian-ish? Oh, from this, yeah. Because like, um, I'm getting I'm getting like that whisper of eucalyptus. It's not as present as it is when you get an Aussie cab sove, but there's definitely something minty going on here. Um, you're putting it in my head, so it didn't come uh, immediately to mind. And as we know that uh, that wine is very, um, uh, you know, subjective, but you can also, you know, put thoughts into people's heads. Nothing like drinking uh, a Chardonnay, let's say, uh, and mm-hmm. uh, telling somebody it smells like banana, and the next thing you know, they go, "Oh yeah, I get that banana too." Um, so you're getting I, you're I, getting the eucalyptus now that I say it. I I do now, but uh, you know. Give me another hour, and I bet you I wouldn't. Mark, what uh, about you? It's, it's, what about uh, you? Am I putting words in your it's mouth? It's as prevalent as, as you think it is. No, no, no. It's not prevalent. It's not prevalent. There, there not is prevalent. definitely a jammy, savory, herbal quality to the wine. It's not. It's here's the best thing about this is it's not just the savory elements aren't just like red pepper like you do when you know you end up with just underripe Cab Franc. And as I've said on the podcast before in the past, Cab Franc is one of those grapes that making it. And I'm using air quotes. Underripe can be a, a good winemaking decision. Uh, beef ribs with a nice, you know, red pepper, green pepper, uh, Chinon or Ontario Cab Franc with uh, beef ribs are, you know, one of my favorite things. So, 
Well, the nice part that I've noticed from Ontario lately is that that green pepper note is going by the wayside. And in all three, now four of these wines, uh, Mark, I don't, I don't pick up any of that bell pepper. And uh, I'm very happy to see that these things are tasting like wine and not like a garden salad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't pick unless um, that sort of moved on from, especially from the Pagoni. Um, we do get vineyards where that's an issue now, but I, I just like to, to sort of echo some of those da- um, growers, uh, wineries, everyone is working as hard as they can to put Cabernet Franc into, um, into a much better place for a winemaking perspective. The changes in Cap Franc since I've started winemaking um, till today have been enormous in terms of the quality that comes off of the vine. So um, I think that we see a lot less overall of that. And I think for me, it's a, it's a focus at all the sites that I'm working at to sort of get past that point. It takes a little bit of time in the, in the vineyard and um, maybe occasionally, um, you know, coughing up some dough to cut some fruit out. So, so Mark, now that we've tasted through the wines, um, We've tasted the difference. I think Michael and I agree that all these are, are very good wines, especially from a challenging vintage. What do you think is, I'm, I'm, this is a hard question to unpack, but what do you think is the biggest thing that needs to be done in Ontario from the producers and marketers to convince the consumer that Cab Franc is Ontario's grape? I, yeah, it's a, it's a tough question to unpack, um, uh, but... You know, when we go back to that podcast that you guys had a couple months ago, I think that's where me coming on the podcast to talk about Cap Franc or you guys moving towards um, trying more this year, which I, signif- I sincerely appreciate and not because I make Cap Franc, but because I think our industry can win with this varietal. Um, I think Michael hit, you know, the, the nose on the head, the, uh, <laughs> the nail on the head there. The, uh, it, it was on the nose when he, when he talked about the need for us to come together and market with the same message regardless of what that message is and you know i would love it to be cap franc but um just coming together to have a consistent message about what ontario wines is is going to allow us to at least have consumers um maybe come more to ontario wines but i will say um you know uh, with the pandemic and people looking to um, shop for their wines from home online um the uptick that I've seen in Ontario uh, wine purchasing from the cellar door has been um, absolutely wonderful. So, you know, the next level of support that we need is, um, you know, maybe a little bit more from our, um, or a little more access to the market, I think. And these super complex, interesting, fun wines in the $20 price point can, um, can really move the entire market. But uh, on the other side of it is, let's not put it all outside of the wineries. As wineries, we have to start um, figuring out how to communicate effectively. We have to start focusing on the quality that's coming out of our cellars and making sure that everyone's going to have a great experience when they drink Ontario wines um, overall. So, you know, it's a combination of both. It's everyone coming together with the same message. And um, and I think everyone making sure that they're focused on producing quality, which um, which I've been really excited to, to sort of see over the last 10 years, that increase in quality in the um, offerings and the opportunities that are there for people learning about Ontario wine or people that just want an everyday um, drinker that's pretty tasty. So. Mark, so uh, 
I first of all, I, I love being right. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to go through the day uh, just telling everybody that I was right. So, uh, but number two, we're obviously online is where people can get these wines. But once we come out of the pandemic and we're allowed to go taste wines, is there a place that you have these wines on for tasting? Um, not, not a hundred percent yet. But if you slip me a message and it's on the weekend. I'll show up at Ridgepoint to uh, to pour these wines. Moro lets me gives me a small space to be able to pour if I uh, if I need to. They're they're uh, produced and, and sold through um, Moro's license, um, and you could order them um, at uh, drinkcolab.ca. So the the whole website is is kind of um, all of us working together to produce some small batch wines. So there's other stuff on there that's awesome. Ramsey Sparklings, you guys tried. I think you um, I think Michael even gave a thumbs up to the sparkling so blanc that had some leaves in it and i thought that was a big win so. i think it was the other way around i think i gave that thumbs up yeah that would have been andre's thing. <laughs> yeah. but That's i thought those, those notes so, on the on the old ton are uh, are actually going to be at andrewinereview.ca some really awesome. interesting stuff um i think in a world where a lot of winemakers are, are pushing the envelope in terms of new identities and new styles what ramsey is doing is something that would speak hopefully as well to the more traditional consumer as it would to some of the more uh, hipster. I say, I use the, I use the term lovingly this time, the more hipster crowd this time. So, so Mark, give us your social media handle so people can follow you and know when you're going to be pouring something. So we're um, at Fogler wines um, on Instagram and, and uh, uh, at Fogler wines on, on Facebook as well. And I uh, don't really use my Twitter at all uh, as well at drink collab on instagram is great to follow they'll be um, posting about uh, what we'll be posting about uh, the focular brands and and what we're doing with that as well so i'm really looking forward to coming out of this pandemic and getting out there to 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 start pouring and, and showing these wines off uh, a little bit again in that 2014 cap franc isn't available online at all but uh, you can get it if you're in niagara if you want to buy some through uh, 20 which is a restaurant in downtown st Catharines. she's listed that 2014 for uh, oh, they've listed that 2014 for about a year now, and um, and you, yeah, I think you could buy it for 20 bucks from the restaurant. So. Oh wow, that's a freaking steal! Thanks very much, Mark. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks, guys. Thanks for pushing uh, Cab Franc and and all the work you guys do for Ontario wines. Um, I look forward to to well, not to hearing my voice on it, but to <laughs> catching up with the rest of your podcasts. So there we go. Another uh, another episode of our Cab Franc series going into the books. Um, I am looking forward to getting into this this year very much. I'm glad. And, and what are you trying to avoid, Andre? I don't know what you're talking about. The C, the C word? The other C word? I mean, uh, just so people know, we've actually made a spreadsheet because we usually just write in our... The past few years, we've written arbitrary checks to... Brian Schmidt at Vineland to support his efforts in Haiti. But this year, I thought it would be fun to actually see how much we swear on this podcast. So um, I've made a spreadsheet. Uh, I'll make it public at the end of the year. And uh, so far, Michael, you've got $2.50 in the swear jar, and I have zero. I can't believe No, no, no. You've at least now got $0.10. Cents. No, because we decided after I said the other c word that we were going to do it are you gonna are you gonna you're gonna charge me in arrears for it i am okay fine we'll take it i've got 10 cents 
I am, because you knew you knew you were not supposed to say it, and yet you still said it anyway. And then you said it twice. Okay, fine, fine, fine. We'll stand by that. Um, we have a new C word on the swear list, and you'll have to, if you haven't listened to this whole podcast, go back and listen to find out what it is, because I'm not saying it again. <laughs> oh my God, this is going to be a, ah, uh, it's going to be a show this year. Uh, there's another and one. another one. All right. Thanks to to Mark for sending us the back vintage of the wines. He sent us quite a few wines to go over. I'm, I'm sure you'll see the content on Andre Wine Review and MichaelPinkusWineReview.com. Um, but Mark is definitely uh, up and coming in terms of the virtual wineries, and I think he's got, I think he's got a focus that's a bit ahead of the the curve. Uh, like per per our reason for talking about Cabernet Franc is I don't think I don't think Cabernet Franc has had its day in the um, in the sun yet in Ontario. Not for, not for Ontario, that's and that's for sure. And I think Mark uh, Mark is putting it front and center. And and to tell you the truth, when the box came to the door, I thought, okay, there's going to be you know a few bottles in here. He had almost a packed case of Cab Franc, back vintages and current vintages. Yep. And I was just surprised and shocked that he is fallen. He's he's not fallen, but he's been under the radar, making Cab Franc all this time. And um, I don't think either one of us was like, wow, I had no idea he was that much into Cab Franc. Well, I, th- I think the reason why he was one of the first we reached out to is you and I both had the same reaction. I know what a lot of people don't know is is you and I don't always score together, but we usually second opinion together. And when we tasted the 2016 uh, Black Label Cabernet Franc, I had to message you because I scored it quite high, and I think our scores lined up. And you'll have to go to our websites to see what the scores were. Uh, that was uh, the 15 you liked better than I did, um, and the 16 I was just thrilled with when I first tasted it. And you were lackluster on that one, but then I guess you tasted it once it had, you know, come together. I guess in bottle, and then suddenly you were you were a little more, a little more emphatically expressive about your opinion let's go with that anyways uh we appreciate the support uh if you are considering financial support our patreon is now in canadian dollars uh and you can check that out patreon.com slash two guys talking wine follow me on social media at andre wine review and we have an amazing instagram that michael's working very hard at two guys talking wine on instagram you'll never miss an episode you'll kind of get a sneak peek at what it is we're working on and uh, see our ugly faces once in a while yeah, I don't think we've put our ugly faces up there quite yet. No, okay. no, I guess there were, there were, and some of the, uh, and some of the, um, um, the legacy podcasts we kind of show up in those. Alrighty then, Rob, take us away, man. I'm Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. You can follow me on social ne- media under the Grape Guy, under Michael Pincus, or under Michael Pincus Wine Review. We're now recording in the morning which is a bit of a surprise. Uh, It's nice to get Andre out of bed early. And um, I've been up for a number of hours because I go to bed early. So it's nice, Andre, that I get you out of bed instead of you keeping me from going to bed. So I wish you a good morning, afternoon. It just sounds weird. I think we still need to say good night. Say good night, Michael. Good night, Michael. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. This episode of Two Guys Talking Wine was produced by Jim Ray and Adam Duran.